1: Hello, welcome to New Books in Neuroscience. This is a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm John Griffiths from CAMH and the University of Toronto. And I'm co-host of this channel with Christopher Harris and Joseph Friedman. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Chris Harris. Chris is a scientist and an educator with the company Backyard Brains. And I'm going to be talking with him today on a variety of fascinating topics, including neuro-robotics, computational neuroscience, and STEM education. Chris, hello. Pleasure to be here. Excellent. So, Chris, before we get into the exciting work you've been doing at the moment, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background?
0: Okay, so I have a perhaps slightly unusual background for a neuroscientist. So I uh, started out in psychology and philosophy. Uh, That's my undergraduate degree, and uh, during that degree, I got very interested in the brain, and uh, eventually ended up doing a PhD in neuroscience uh, in England at the University of Sussex. Um, and then I moved to the US in 2012 to do a postdoc uh, at the, the National Institutes of Health. And um, my my PhD studies in, in neuroscience were uh, used a small... Sea snail as the model organism, and the advantage of doing that is that you can see and record from neurons in the brain individually. So, so snails do have a brain, and uh, it contains about twenty thousand neurons. And we focused on the part of the brain that uh, controls feeding behavior. And one of the things that you can do with a small system like that is that you can expose it to important neurotransmitters like dopamine and uh, observe exactly how a small network like this responds to dopamine. Uh, dopamine is the chemical in the brain that controls um, motivation and learning, attention, that sort of thing. And uh, that's that's been my, my main interest uh, in, in neuroscience ever since. Um, when I came to the National Institute of Health, I was studying the zebrafish. So a little bit of a step up, but, uh, but not that far. A, a larval zebrafish, which is what we studied, has about 80,000 neurons. Um, and in the zebrafish, we studied vision primarily. Uh, I tried to get into the dopamine story with the zebrafish, but it's 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 difficult when they're so young. Um, but yeah, that's um, that's my that's my training as a as a neuroscientist. Uh,
1: yeah. And zebrafish. So zebrafish, when you're studying them, they're they're larval, right? So they're yeah, small, they're transparent kind of pieces of jelly, pretty much.
0: That's right. They're, they're only a week old. And the, the advantage is that when they're so young, um, their skin is transparent and their, their skull is transparent. And so you can actually do calcium imaging, which is a very powerful method for studying individual neurons. Uh, you can do that with these zebrafish uh, without af- actually having to open up the brain and and, uh, and interfere with the animal. You can You can restrain it in a little gel uh, and even leave its uh, eyes and its tail free to move, and then you can put them under a two-photon microscope, and you can see thousands of cells sometimes um, individually, and record from them. And you can crucially, you can expose the fish to visual stimuli and other stimuli um, to actually see how the brain processes visual information and, and, and transforms it into motions of the eyes and the, the tail. And what is
1: what is the difference as uh, say from a from the point of view of neurobiologist and maybe as a data analyst, f- between going from a snail with, I guess, a couple of dozen electrode recordings, maybe, and then calcium imaging in a fish, where you must have hundreds or what, thousands of data points per yeah. millisecond. Right. I guess well, that's no, a big a, shift.
0: It's a big shift. Um, and I ended up doing quite a bit of you know uh, a a lot of neuroscience is trying to interpret the data you can record a lot mm-hmm. of data and then the the question is how can we how can we make sense of it and how can we make it do something useful um, and and yes with the with calcium imaging you get you get hundreds and hundreds of, of cells and the big challenge is to cluster them in into groups that are that you believe are actually present and then with the with the zebrafish, the promise is that because the brain is relatively small, we can do uh, something called electron microscopy or 3D electron microscopy to reconstruct the specific synapse uh, configuration, the specific connections between the neurons in this small brain. Um, and, and by doing that, we can really get to the bottom of what the circuits in the brain really are and how, how they produce this activity that we're observing this is not something that we've done yet we haven't been able to create this this kind of detailed map of the connections within the zebrafish brain yet but it's uh, within reach so it's something that uh, we're hoping to do within the next five ten years like
1: excellent excellent and so so from the human mind and psychology to snails to fish and then on onto- uh, cognitive neurorobotics. So, I think I think it's going to be fair to say that the 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 background there in terms of the the, the model organisms is going to come back through this conversation a few times in terms of trying to understand simple brains. Right. But why don't why don't you tell us now about that that transition? So now now you're in in the area of neurorobotics and educational neurorobotics. So how do you go from from your, your work in the fish and your kind of neuroscience research to this latest evolution in your career trajectory.
0: Right. So, um, towards the end of my postdoc at the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, I, I, I sort of realized that I didn't quite have the right temperament for basic science. Um, Doing science in a lab, especially at a place like the NIH, it, it requires you to be very uh, to have a, to have a attention for detail, a a, a love for precision, um, a, a, a focus on making small but consistent incremental steps forward. Um, you have to be patient. You have to accept uh, that change is slow. Uh, you have to specialize 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 and focus on one one system one particular setup one behavior for for years and years and years and and it's never about the thing that maybe drives you into neuroscience to begin with which is the the the, the amazing brain and, and and what it's what it's able to do and, and and the the fascination that you get from just thinking about the brain, the human brain, the many things that it, it can do and how it does it. When you, when you're actually in the lab studying your particular little snail or fish year in and year out, it's a, it's a very different situation. And for, for me, it, it didn't, I didn't feel like I would be able to perform as well as, as you need to to be able to attract funding as a scientist uh, if I continued down, down that route um, during. During my time at the NIH, I had gotten interested in neuro robotics, uh, the idea of using simulated brains to control robots. And I had um, played around with writing software to Im- implement um, computational models of neurons. And I'd, I'd uh, kind of discovered online shopping <laughs> in the US and realized that I could get all the parts that I needed for a small robot sent to my door in two days for you know, less a few hundred dollars. And so I, I was kind of playing around with the idea of building brain-based robots, but I didn't get any uh, uptake within the NIH. There was, there was my, my PI, my, my boss was not interested. And um, neuro-robotics has a slightly bad name within neuroscience. It's getting better, but basically people feel that you have too many free parameters with these robots, and that, that what you're basically doing is you're you're spending a lot of money building robots that can replicate experimental data, but are but cannot necessarily produce new testable hypotheses. Um, this is changing a little bit now because, uh, well, basically because computer power is increasing and because models of brains and circuits are getting better. But it's still the case that robotics is not. Um, at the forefront of neuroscience, certainly. Brain modeling is a little bit different, but, but neuro-robotics actually claiming to have a brain controlling a robot or a brain-like uh, system controlling a robot and, and, and kind of deriving scientific value from that, that's still um, slight, slightly out of reach or at least uh, controversial. What it, uh, What
1: but, is the adage? It's, uh, first they tell you. <clears throat> excuse me first they tell you you're crazy then they tell you you're stupid yeah. then they tell you you they knew it all along right? <laughs> right somewhere somewhere on that arc maybe
0: right right um so i i had this idea that you well i had this interest in in, in brain-based robots basically and i what what attracted me to it was but it was more—it was—it was more practical, and and I could see that it, that it was something that I could, where I could make a significant difference quickly. I, I I could see that there is nothing in principle stopping us from developing really advanced brain models and having them do fascinating, interesting stuff in robots. With the the computational neuroscience is the limiting factor there, and so I was attracted to the idea of working with robots like that. Um, but I didn't want to do it in a normal science context where I would be spending another five years. Trying to model a particular uh, visual visual motor response of a particular fish uh, in, in in extreme detail that that was not what I wanted so I got interested in the idea of using these robots for education because within education I felt like there it was an opportunity to highlight the uh, that the brain is, is is fascinating, that neuroscience is fascinating, that it is inspiring, uh, that it's something that, that will engage students, even with very little science background. Most students are interested in the mind and interested in uh, psychological processes. Um, and so I found this grant that the National Institute of Health um, awards, which is called a Small Business Innovation Research Grant, an SBIR grant. Um, and I reached out to a company called Backyard Brains, uh, who, I, who I work with now, work for now. Uh, and they had in the past developed, uh, attracted these kinds of grants to develop high school neuroscience research equipment. So they had focused on something called a Spiker Box, which is a cheap electrophysiology rig, uh, cheap and affordable and uh, uh, user friendly. Uh, uh, Electrophysiology rig that allowed students to uh, record EG from the head or record spikes from nerves of cockroaches or earthworms uh, and to stimulate the nerves of the hand to, to kind of cause involuntary contractions and those kinds of uh, simple but, but very instructive experiments uh, and, and making them available to students in the classroom. And so I. I contacted them and proposed that we should write a grant together to develop these neural robots. And and it sort of took off from, from there. I joined the company. We applied for this grant three times before we had success. But on the third trial, we we, uh, we got the award. And it's a pretty significant award that, that will keep us going for many years, hopefully. And um, basically, the our, our mission is to make Neuro robotics available to high schools, high school students around the world, and, and hopefully beyond high school. We were um, basically interested in making the brain more accessible to everyone using neuro robots, using simulated um, simulated brains, visualizations of brains, user interfaces where you can easily do things like add testosterone to a brain or add dopamine to a brain and observe the responses.
1: Great. Great. That's fantastic. That's really brings us up to the to the present day and to right. the the um, the meat of the conversation. So uh, let's let's get down to business now and talk about the the innards of the neuro robot infrastructure that you've been developing. Then you had a, an excellent paper published very recently in Frontiers in Neuro Robotics just last month. That is February twenty twenty. And the paper was titled Neuro-Robotics Workshop for High School Students Promotes com- Competence and Confidence in Computational Neuroscience. Now, for, for listeners, this was in a journal called Frontiers. Frontiers is, a, is an open access journal. So anyone anyone can view and download a PDF of this article. You just need to find it. So if you just Google Christopher Harris, Frontiers in Neuro-Robotics, you should get the URL from, uh, from probably the top hit. And so the article itself, it spells out these these main components of your project. It has a, all of this info, the rationale, the the hardware and software design specs, which are fascinating, the details of these high school educational workshops you've been running. And I'd really like to go through each of these in turn and, and kind of unpick and hear about all the, all the work and the ideas and the innovation you've been putting in in those areas. So we had a bit of the Background in terms of your motivations just now, but maybe we could flesh out, or you could flesh out for us the rationale a little bit more. So why, why go for this? You know, slightly on the face of it, slightly eclectic mix of robotics, computational neuroscience, and high school education. What's the reason for putting those things into the pot?
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, first of all, the the kind of the overarching significance of the project or the purpose of the project um, is to remedy the fact that high school students generally, at least in the U S don't get any education in neuroscience. There is usually a small neuroscience component to biology and or psychology classes, but they're, they're small. They're they're not individual units. And um, this is a problem because neuroscience is, is, uh, is critical but one in five people will suffer some sort of mental um, disorder or disability in their lifetime, and currently there are very few cures uh, or even effective treatments for most brain disorders. So we have a, an impulse, we have a need to educate the workforce of the future in neuroscience. But uh, beyond that, like I said, neuroscience itself is just fascinating. It's, it's really interesting. It's what we are. It's, it's, it's unique in, in the sciences, I think, in terms of how it speaks directly to us as human beings. Um, and, and it's increasing quickly. We are learning more and more every year about the brain. And this is reflected in, a, in high student interest. So when we go and speak to schools, we usually find that the students... Are asking for neuroscience classes, and that the teachers are very eager to be able to offer them neuroscience classes. The problem has been that there's so little in the way of um, both curriculum and and uh, kind of hands-on experiments. So, so it's very important in education to give students the ability to actually work with the things they're learning, so that you're not just telling them about. You know the contents of brains, but that they actually have an opportunity to work with brains, and and that's that's difficult. The, the brain is is very protected in in all animals and and hard to reach. And so apart from the uh, electrophysiology experiments that backyard brains had already developed, and perhaps the you know the occasional cutting up a uh, you know uh, squid. Uh, brain or something like that, there there weren't really any exercises for students to do. And so by going for neural robots and making the system one that students could access easily, you 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 make it accessible, it's a drag and drop user interface where you can add neurons and synapses individually or in groups and kind of modify the properties of the brain on a global scale. This gives the students an opportunity to actually work with the brain. And all education research shows that that's really, really important, both for engagement and for confidence, but also for for just learning core concepts. Um, and so, right. yeah, that, that, that's the motivation. The, the only last thing I'd say is that there is a, there is an overlap, a kind of growing overlap between neuroscience and artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, both use neural networks. They are different neural networks, but both use neural networks. and. When you're working with robots, you have an opportunity to use AI networks or machine learning networks to do things like object detection, uh, speech recognition, those kinds of things. And and so we we include AI as quite a big component or machine learning is quite a big component of our neuroscience course. And so this means and, and this is also something that students are very interested in. They they are all you know of course very. Um, uh, Immersed and embedded in, in modern technology, and so they, they are aware of AI, and uh, they, they like to learn about it, and they, they understand the idea that brains and AIs have some similarities and, and also some differences. And this is something we we talk about. So, in addition to learning w- what is essentially biology, the students do learn uh, some some computer science and data science as well, which is which is useful. Excellent,
1: excellent. Um, okay, well, so now let's get to the real, uh, nuts and bolts and let's talk about the, the design. So, so what is this thing? What have we got? What is the newer robot? Let's right. start, let's start with hardware and mm-hmm. then we'll think about software and the, the brain simulation component.
0: Mm-hmm. So the hardware that we describe in the paper is uh, a DIY design. So meaning all the components that are described in the paper are components that you can buy today online for less than $170. Um, we also have a manufactured robot where we have actually, you know, designed and printed the circuit board itself. And this allows us a bit more freedom in terms of, you know, functionality and price and and, and usability and customization and that kind of thing. But basically the DIY robot described in the paper is the same as the the manufactured robots that we use in the, in the classrooms, they're functionally the same. So what you have is you have a camera, you have a microphone and a speaker, you have a distance sensor, uh, you have two wheels and a swivel wheel at the back, but basically two wheels um, and a big battery pack. And that's sort of it. And then the the robot, con- Communicates with a laptop via uh, Bluetooth and Wi-Fi, and the it basically implements uh, information flow where you have the simulated brain on the laptop generating motor output that's communicated to the speaker and to the motors of the robot, so it moves around and makes sounds in the in the environment in the classroom, and then its camera and Microphone are picking up, and distance sensor are picking up uh, sensory information, and that sensory information is then sent back as feedback to the brain, <clears throat> which affects how the brain is processing, and then you know changes the output, and so it goes around and around and around like that. So you've implemented kind of a sensory motor loop um, using a using a robot that's not it doesn't have any. Arms, any effectors, anything like that. We're not trying to make it look like a human. Uh, it's it's what we wanted was to have the visual information, the motor output, the sensory, the, the, the speaker input and, and voice or sound output, and that's kind of it. Because uh, seeing and hearing are our two most kind of powerful senses. Uh, movement is is I think essential for for kind of engaging students. And then uh, by adding sound output, you can, in principle, imagine communicating with this with this robot. And that's what right. I was interested. I didn't really want to get into, you know, the 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 mechanics of of, of walking or the mechanics of of trying to grip an egg, uh, or or of of crawling or anything like that, which is what a lot of neuro uh, robotics is kind of focused on at least that's indeed
1: so that that was maybe a strategic decision on your part to yeah. to skip as you said one of the the principal topics in in robotics in general which is motor articulation with joint type you know hands and arms and so on yeah. you really you have something that's kind of like a little you know toy car yeah um uh, but you're interested in essentially the slightly higher cognitive aspects of organism, organisms and nervous systems that is just one step abstracted away from the uh, the articu- specific articulations of let's say like mammalian legs and arms, and also the specific way that sound and, and visual information is parsed through the retina and maybe the earlier vis- visual system. Absolutely. You start just one step above those two.
0: That's right. That's right. I didn't. I did not want to get uh, stuck in something that would take a long time to build. Like, like, um, there's a lot of people working on how the brain responds to the whiskers of the of a rat, for instance, being being touched, and they, they spend years and years trying to get that exactly right. And to me, I, I didn't. Yeah, I I just didn't want to to get stuck in something that wouldn't be of maximal interest to students, basically. And and it's fine. I I I I'm glad that people are working on robots that could, in principle, walk or have facial expressions or uh you know do the dishes or something like that. That's going to be very useful in the future. But it didn't feel like the place where I could really contribute. What I wanted to do was to uh, create something that was as cheap as possible with a Potential for being something like a companion, or a, or a, or a, uh, almost like a pet that you could right. interact with without a lot of expensive hardware.
1: Okay. Okay. So you have the you have the virtual robot device, and then and then the control is being done by uh, either a laptop based um, brain simulation or a mobile phone based brain simulation. So mm-hmm. do you want to go into the details of maybe, maybe the kind of the implementation type things first, and then we'll, then we'll switch over to the neurobiology mm-hmm. or your, your take on the neurobiology.
0: Sure. Sure. So, um, let me speak about the laptop, uh, app first that we are working on an iOS app, um, but it's, it's not, it's not at all ready. And it's, it, it wasn't part of this paper. Um, but the, the, mat, the laptop app is written in MATLAB. I'm, I'm uh, uh, a scientist, and many scientists use MATLAB just because that's how we, uh, how we get indoctrinated <laughs> early on, and I've just kind of stuck with it. Uh, and so the app itself is written mainly in MATLAB, but I, I eventually ran into some limitations of MATLAB and had to hire an engineer who's uh, written a whole... c plus wrapper for the the wi-fi communication part of the the code um but basically it's a big matlab app um it has three modes uh, or two modes there is a it has two modes really there's a runtime mode where you can see what the robot is seeing so you're seeing the video stream displayed in real-time and you're seeing a spectrum that represents the audio input and then you can see the brain that's being simulated Uh, and that's running in in real-time updating about 10 times per second and then you can pause that at any moment and go into another mode called the design mode where you can uh, add or remove neurons add synapses add groups of neurons using algorithms uh, and also connect these neurons to the speakers and the motors of the, of the robot.
1: Right. Right. Excellent. Excellent. So now maybe let's talk about the, the brain, which mm-hmm. is really this, the the core motivation and the core on the educational side, this is really where your emphasis is. Mm-hmm. So, so how did you address this problem you've, you're trying in in the classroom you're trying to introduce a a pretty ambitious set of neuroscience concepts including neuron types and spiking patterns and sensation perception action action plasticity dopamine basal ganglia function so you you're you you come up with a an architecture to to be able to both control the the robot device using some of these principles but also do it in a somewhat transparent enough way to fit into your like classroom educational objectives That's right. so so tell us about the, the the how you've gone about this what what the implementation version is in terms of the neuron models and then what were the what were your um, primary considerations in deciding how to how to build this thing and what would be the best um, the best version of a of a simulated brain to have in this context
0: Mm -hmm. so i picked a neuron type called the ishikiewicz neuron so eugene ishikiewicz made uh, a discovery or developed a a computational model of neurons of spiking neurons back in 2005 sometime around there uh, which is a good it makes a very useful compromise between Relatively complicated spiking patterns and realistic-looking membrane potentials, while at the same time being relatively computationally light. Uh, so, so if you want to do a really intricate neuron model, you should use something called a Hodgkin-Huxley, uh, Hodgkin-Huxley neuron, um, which contains all of the different kinds of currents and and other properties of of the neuronal membrane that you would need if you were going to do a multi-compartment, detailed, uh, nice neuron model. I didn't think that we would need that to start with. I, I, I reckoned that at the beginning, we would be using point neurons, so individual neurons that connect with one synapse to, to any other neuron. And for that, the Išekiewicz neuron seemed like a good compromise because from my work in with snails, and fish. I knew that to do interesting things with a relatively small number of neurons, you need fairly complicated neurons. They need to be able to do things like generate bursts spontaneously, uh, to respond in different ways to input. So, so for instance, if you have a, uh, we have neurons that respond with bursts to input, or respond with a sp- single spike to input, and that that's important if you want to be able to, for instance, drive a robot forward. If it sees something very briefly, if you want that, you can have a neuron that's responding to the, the visual input and then activates a bursting. neuron, And so that will give enough force to kind of drive the robot forward for some time. Uh, and and, um, and that's important. You need things like post-inhibitory rebound. Um, but but yeah, I, I also didn't want to get too complicated. So Ishakiewicz neurons seemed like a good idea. And then I have or we have two types of plasticity, uh, or really one type of plasticity. So we've implemented a sort of spike timing dependent plasticity learning rule, meaning if two neurons are firing at the same time, an excitatory synapse connecting the two will get stronger. Um, In a real brain, the the time scale would be very small so that the spikes, the, the action, Potentials needed would need to happen, you know, within the same ten milliseconds to to have an effect. In our system, we've extended that window, so the spikes need to happen only within the same second, say. And so this is an example of a point where we've relaxed the biological realism of the system in order to make an educational point. And that was important to me. That the the, the point here is not First and foremost, to model the brain super accurately, the, the main point is to be able to get an educational message across to students. And in this case, the main message is that neurons that fire, to get a wire together. The time scale on which that happens is is of secondary importance. It's important, and I point out to students where the model uh, differs from what you would expect in a real brain. But um, uh, the, the the main thing is that you're able to get across a message to students, uh, and so for instance, one one other thing that we've implemented is um, so my 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 interest, as I said before, is on in dopamine and the, the basal ganglia and kind of action selection and control, and so one way to implement that in a simulated brain like this would be to actually go ahead and build a basal ganglia with neurons, uh, which is a which is something that has been done. Uh, Peter Redgrave and many others have attempted to build computational models of the basal ganglia, and then they work and that, and it's interesting, but they are very complicated and hard to edit. And so again, what we did was instead of implementing a proper neuronal model of the basal ganglia, we've implemented an algorithmic model where you can assign neurons in the brain to a, a unique network, a unique basal ganglia network, a unique network that's under the control of a channel within the basal ganglia. Um, and this means that um, you can have different networks within the brain being active at different times. So you may have one network that approaches red things. You could have another network that's generating a little dance and a song. You can have a third network that that's hiding or, Makes the robot move to a to a quiet dark place, that sort of thing. And so now you have three different behaviors that are incompatible. You cannot have a dancing and a hiding behavior going at the same time. But uh, if you assign these three different circuits, these three different behaviors, to different basal ganglia networks, then they will only be uh, then they will only be able to be activated one at a time. Uh, and you can also assign special uh input to these networks so that one network can be activated during a certain sensory context um, and they compete with each other and they respond to dopamine um, by being kind of uh, the dopamine basically reinforces the currently selected behavior Um, and and so the point with this is that this selection process this basal ganglia type Dynamics is implemented algorithmically. It's just it's just an addition to the Ishikawa model that I've added, not in the form of a neural network, but uh, algorithmically. One day, I hope we can move away from that and actually have a real basal ganglion in there, uh, you know, compute compute power permitting. Um, but again, from the time being, the main thing is to be able to get a message across to students that that's true, uh, but that can be simplified if if necessary.
1: So so what would an example you mentioned a few briefly just now um dancing and what hiding in a corner Mm -hmm. you elaborate a little bit more on that so what, what would be the um you know on the ground behaviors that we're talking about here and then what is the um the mechanism or the the process that you're using and getting the students to use to um choose what to reinforce and how Mm -hmm. in 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 what kind of sequence
0: so in the in the first lessons the students design brains from scratch meaning they start with a completely empty brain and um i might tell them something like okay let's design a brain that moves forward when it sees something red and so they would just drop a neuron into the brain and then connect input from the eyes to that neuron uh and and select from a list of possible visual things that that neuron can be responsive to, they would select red. And then from that neuron, they would also extend axons to the motors that would drive the robot forward when that neuron is activated. And so now if you put something red in front of the robot, it's going to move forward. Um, now, if you have, instead of just one neuron, you use two neurons, one that's activating the motors on the left side when something red appears on the, in the right visual field, and another one that activates the left motors when something appears on the right side of the visual field. Now you have something called a Breitenberg vehicle, which will move towards something red, even if that red thing is moving. So basically if if the if the red thing that you're seeing is on the left and you and that activates the motors on the right side, that's going to turn the robot towards the red thing. And then the red thing will be in the center of the visual field, activating the motors both on the left and the right side. And so now it's going to move forward. Um, And so now you have something that's approaching something else, which is interesting. Now, maybe you add a third neuron that's connected to the distance sensor and makes the robot move backwards when it's uh, getting too close to something. And so now you have a robot that that will move around on the floor, uh, approach red things, but without crashing into objects. And so and then maybe you add a fourth neuron that produces spontaneous little bursts so that the robot is moving spontaneously. So it doesn't just sit still until it sees something red, but it moves spontaneously. Um, so that that's the kind of brain that the students might design in the first two lessons. So I yeah, go pretty simple four-neuron for brain. And then in the following lessons, I have pre-configured brains that are a, a little bit more complicated and, and kind of uh, tuned and balanced so that they, they will produce interesting types of behavior. Uh, things like dancing, things like responding to audio input with a specific motor output or audio output. Um, if you have two ne- two robots in the same place, we can train a neural network so that they can detect each other. And you can use the sound, uh, the microphone and the speakers to have the robots actually communicate with each other. So if they hear a particular tone, they produce a specific response. Um, we're we're working now on uh, something called RAT SLAM, which is uh, basically a... Uh, method for implementing place cells. So hippocampal uh, place cells allow the brain to know where it is in a room, and so you can tie specific locations in a room to specific behaviors. This way, so that one w- when the robot gets to a place that's calm or quiet or dark or something, you can you can tell it okay, stay there. Now now shut off that other circuit that was uh, causing you to explore. So it's, it's, um, it's early days, um, but I'm, I'm, we're finally at a stage where designing more and more interesting brains is kind of the limiting factor, which is great. That's exactly where I want to be. I want the computational neuroscience to be the bottleneck in this project, not the hardware or the software or, or the money or getting into schools uh, to teach. Uh, but actually, to have the neuroscience be the, the li- limiting factor, because I feel relatively certain that um, we'll be able to build just just more and more and more interesting behaviors using using discoveries in neuroscience.
1: Fantastic. So, uh, this this question I think does speak to your last point about expanding and having the neuroscience be be the limiting factor. The thing, the question that I have, or the th- a question that occurs to me when I'm thinking about and you know seeing one or two videos of the of the devices, and you have these little clusters as well. You have what three or four or five of them running at the same time. Little kind of pods. um mm-hmm. What what yeah, type well, yeah. of, I'd say, quote unquote, animal are we are we looking at here? I mean, obviously it's a strange hybrid of machine and be- machine and you know, animal brain in so far as it has wheels for a start and a digital camera for an eye, right. but, um, you know, at the level of the, uh, kind of behavioral primitives and the, do you, do you have a sense? Like, are you, are you basically, do you have a little fish on wheels here? Or do you have a, a little, little kind of slightly dumb mouse on wheels, or is it like a nematode worm on wheels or.
0: Right. No, it's a good question. Uh, uh, I, I don't think of it in those terms anymore. Um. But now that you mention it, 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 it's true that the the hardware design is not was not entirely based uh, arrived at in a, in in, in, a, in a rational way. But but in the in the beginning, the aim of these robots was to model the fish, like I said. And so the larval zebrafish <clears throat> uh, it only it only has the ability to, to kind of navigate in two dimensions. In these kind of relatively shallow surfaces, uh, so so like the robot, it can move left and right and forward and backward, um, and then it has vision and hearing, and so so it's actually kind of similar to a larval zebrafish in in some sense, um, but I don't think of it as a as a particular animal anymore, and and I enjoy, uh, for instance, having the convolutional neural networks that we use for object detection. They kind of give give a certain uh, gravitas <laughs> to the brain if it's if it's able to detect uh, changes in the environment that are that, that correspond to specific events or, or at least able to detect specific objects like shoes or other robots or or um, like with the students I frequently bring in balloons and cups and uh, yeah, well there, you can you can train a system to detect anything so desks and and, and legs so you and, have chairs a, and so on
1: you, you have a is it a pre-trained visual module that in the form of a convolutional net
0: right right uh i forget if i'm using i think i'm still using alex net so actually okay. relatively old uh, object detection network but it's it's uh, kind of it comes pre-installed in matlab so i don't even do that much uh, training of it i have trained uh, networks to detect other robots and to do that you need to take Pictures of, of other robots. I I, I took a hundred pictures the first time, and I was struggling like, why is this not working? It's not working. And then I just took another hundred and fifty pictures, so two hundred and fifty pictures of robots from different angles. And then suddenly it worked beautifully. It's just a, a an instance of of you do you do need large data sets for to train these convolutional neural networks. But with enough data, you can you can train them to detect anything. And we want Sorry. to do the same thing now with with uh, voice so that you can use voice commands uh, to make the robot do something. So again, you you I I think of these as kind of sensory filters. So you have visual filters that uh, could be something simple like a color or something complex like an object or a, or an event. Um, and same for audio input. You you can at the moment I have it set up so that the microphone or so so that neurons can be activated by specific tones, but there's nothing stopping us from making a specific neuron that responds to a specific uh, voice command. And so that takes you, if you think of it in terms of kind of Jennifer Aniston neurons and and, and temporal cortex neurons, where you have very high specificity, uh, this kind of artificial neural network allows us to uh, kind of work as if we had an advanced visual system you know all the way from V one up to the temporal cortex that's able to identify specific objects um and so in that sense i don't i don't feel like i'm working with a a small brain that's a word right so
1: i'm w- what i'm thinking now is maybe if we broaden a little bit beyond just the the new robot project you have which is in itself very kind of expansive in its own way but thinking about the field of neuro robotics in general or cognitive neuro robotics or the intersection of computational neuroscience and robotics do you have any you know feeling about what what's going on what's kind of live and exciting in this field at the moment and then are there any particular intersection points or indeed kind of negative intersection points things you' avoid or want to avoid in terms of what's you know big big topics at the moment in your robotics in general we talked about uh action motor control things as well but could you speak to that a little bit
0: yeah so uh to, to me the interesting uh so so let's see It's, it's a little bit like there are two separate realms where you have neuro-robotics and neuroscientists and computational neuroscience sticking very close to the, to the brain. So, so if, if, like, for instance, during the review of this paper, um, one of the reviewers were saying something like that they were having a hard time understanding how we did the vision because they didn't see a model of the retina in there. And it, and it, to me, that's 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 fantastic. I I do not want the model of the retina in there. That's a that's a that's a five year project right there. Trying to do that right. Fifty um, year project. Exactly. <laughs> it's it's a very very complicated thing to to get that right. And and my impression is that scientists, neuroscientists, uh, are forced a little bit to stick almost too close to the the brain brain data. And then on the other side, we have these remarkable developments in AI and robotics. Um, If you think of something like the Google Home, that's a robot that can hear and produce sound out, but it can't move, but it doesn't really need to. But in terms of what's inside, um, there's very little overlap apart from apart from ai's using neurons and synapses there's very little from the brain actually in uh, artificial neural networks today i would say i mean reinforcement learning is a big big thing and that in some sense has come from biology but there's very little in the way of biologically realistic circuitry in anything going on at google and and so the the main the interesting thing for me is to kind of try to inhabit that space between, slavishly sticking to what's given in the biology, and and at the same time getting too far away from biology. Like I I, I want to try to embrace the um, messiness of biological systems, um, the the kind of the spontaneity which is very important. The the fact that biological systems always even in in nematode worms they always have goals and preferences and preferred states and they express them all the time um, your your google home doesn't have a preferred state it doesn't doesn't have anything like a like a want <laughs> or a need uh, and its neurons uh doesn't are not active unless they become activated by input from you you know a, a neural network in an ai or in, in google home will the neurons will only respond, produce activity, and activate down, downstream layers if they get input. In a brain, it's very different. The brain's producing a ton of activity all by itself. Um, and so in that sense, I guess they're a little bit more like a Roomba, which at least produces spontaneous behavior. But a, a Roomba's behavior is very predictable as well with, with robots, with brains. You have a huge amount of unpredictability, and you have these kind of really canonical structures. You have a thalamus, you have a cortex, you have a basal ganglia. Uh, you do have retinas, but but my focus is on the the core structures like like cortex, like the basal ganglia um, that seem to kind of house the the, the most ex- essential part of the experience and the, and the ability. I don't know if that Good. makes sense. I hope uh, I hope that's yeah
1: more. yeah that that certainly. Was the kind of thing I was wondering. I have I have another follow up. Uh, I I realize or it occurred to me from your comments just now that we should do a, a follow up discussion. It would be another discussion, another time on uh, what what is going on in the in the head of a um, of a brain simulation or or indeed a nematode worm, mm-hmm. uh, more along a kind of philosophical dimension um, of what is a, what kind of mind do you have in a, in a fish, a fly, a worm and a, and a neuro robot.
0: Well, well, let, let me just say one thing, uh, which is that, um, in the lesson, so the fourth lesson is where I kind of go into AI and machine learning properly in the, in the classroom. And that's usually a very successful lesson because the students are very interested in exactly this question. So, so if you put it to the students that, uh, you know, robots, and computers are going to get more and more complicated, more and more capable, uh, and you tell them that it's a completely open question at the moment whether a robot that has something like a brain inside it's a simulation, but something that that has the functional, the components of, of a real brain, it's a completely open question at the moment whether such a thing would be in any sense conscious. Would it be bad to mistreat a service robot? Uh, uh, we, we, don't, we don't really know. And there are, there are many arguments. There are many ways you can go with that, that debate. Um, but basically, the question, is my robot conscious, is something that the students will, will, are, are very primed to, to talk about and to get into a discussion about. They really appreciate that question. And I think that's great they don't have any preconceived really notion of what what the true answer is and they they appreciate that it's a complicated question and the robots i think provide a good opportunity to explore that question because the students always anthropomorphize the robots they will give them names they will treat them right <laughs> there was one case where the a robot wasn't working and the, the student group tried to put the robot up for adoption because they cared for it <laughs> and 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 so but, but obviously, if you're working with a robot that has just two neurons simulated, then there's, there's probably no, no consciousness in there. But then what if there was 20 neurons or 200 neurons or 2 million neurons? What if they were implemented using neuromorphic hardware? Now you kind of start to really appreciate on a, on a kind of hands-on level, almost the problems with trying to determine whether something is conscious or not.
1: Indeed, indeed. And there was a, there was a second question, which I had that was on, uh, on the kind of philosophical line partly, but also I think in an interesting way, there's, there's practical dimensions to this, which is that you're, you're working in a very, uh, highly embodied paradigm here. I mean, it's kind of an exquisitely exquisite case of, uh, an embodied agent in, in a way, yeah. um, Whereas in other i mean conceivably this whole thing could have been done in virtual reality, for example, right, yeah. and the design of the the software would be kind of the same in terms of the internal you know the brain control part mm-hmm. so do you you know when you're when you're designing this, when you were thinking about it, when you're talking about it with the students, do the pros and cons and the kind of the differences between the um the kind of messy real world embodied scenario that you're presenting here and that you're working with versus a potential alternative, which would have advantages in terms of once you could get it together, if you could have you know a simulation of the environment, then you know that 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 would have advantages in terms of scaling and uh, you know certain um, things you could do faster with the learning paradigms and so on i mean that, that 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 really is the the cutting edge in terms of um ai and machine learning mm-hmm. uh the most interesting things in our machine learning are uh simulated environments or simulated scenarios like uh, like the the go ai that is you know it's it's that they, they gamify the learning scenario but essentially, they simulate the learning scenario, and then they can just do that at epic speed and epic scale at an epically fast amount of time, and generate an awful lot of training data synthetically to then be able to create an effective learned, you know, behaviors and and learning process. Mm-hmm. So those are the advantages of working in the virtual space. You're not working in the virtual space; you're working in the real world. But what are your what are your thoughts about the? You know relationship between those those two here
0: mm-hmm. so there there are it there's a spectrum um and, and actually even within the field of what i call educational neurorobotics so so robots brain-based robots used to teach uh there are some people um oh i forget their name now it's an nsf funded project I, I can't remember the name right now, but they built actual hardware neurons. So individual neurons that you can physically kind of pick up. They are, they are like little plastic uh, devices with a with an LED on them that indicates when the neuron is, is firing. And then you physically connect them to other neurons and, and kind of make a, a as if you're playing a board game or something. That's kind of on one end of the spectrum. And then the other end, would be something like the Human um, Brain Project's neuro robotic plat- platform, uh, which which is fully simulated. Everything is simulated, and, and they have a physics engine, and you 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 can upload neural networks and connect them to a simulated robot that will move around in a simulated environment, and and, and you can test your systems that way. Um, I i the the we picked an intermediate level, uh, and I think. I don't. It was it was just intuitive on my part. On the one hand, I wanted to have a robot that could move around in the world and make sound and hear sound in the world. Uh, especially the movement was important to me. And and when when students engage with the robots, I, I I at least believe that the the having something that's with you in the world and moves around. And can kind of can do real things like like crash into another robot or or fly off a desk or uh, um, you know a wheel can fall off that kind of thing in the world it has it adds to the engagement level of, of the project I think that said um, I also wanted to have the option of uh, running really really big simulations. In principle, so you you can imagine now running a brain that's uh, maybe running in the cloud, or if you have a really powerful laptop, you could run you know millions of neurons that would control this same this same robot. So it's it's scalable, it's massively scalable in, in that sense. And one one thing you can do with our system is um, if you go to the the paper, uh, there'll be a link to our GitHub. Uh, repo where all of the code and the entire app, the entire MATLAB app is available for free. And you don't need a robot to run it. So you can actually run that app, the whole brain simulator, everything in on just a laptop using the laptop's web camera and speaker and microphone to do most of the things that you could do with a real robot, apart from the actual movement, of course. And and uh, that allows people to kind of try out brain design and, and see what the app Um, app's capabilities are before they buy a robot. Uh, And that's kind of a, and it's free. And so so it's it's kind of a benefit of of having this intermediate position between the two extremes of of simulation or or hardware.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Well, Chris, this has been a fantastic discussion. I'm going to wrap up now with just one final question, which is what are the future plans? Where are you hoping to take this work in the future, both in terms of the, the educational, uh, dimension with the reach and I guess the depth and the scope and indeed the, the hardware and the computational neuroscience element of the, of the, the robot simulated brain, where do you want this to be going in five, 10 years, 20, 50, take your pick.
0: So, so like I said, I've, I've been studying the brain for, for a long time. Now I, I love neuroscience. I love reading about different theories of the brain. Um. And I, I hope that these robots will provide a platform where different theories of brain function can be tested. If you say that you have a theory of how the brain does short-term memory, let's see a model of it. Let's build a robot that can remember things that has happened to it uh, in an interesting way. If you have a theory of how the hippocampus does navigation, let's build a model and, and let's have let's show that this model is able to navigate using only spiking neurons and in a way that's, that's uh, realistic. Um, I basically want to implement as many different uh, interesting, useful theories of brain function as possible in these robots. I, I am hoping that with uh, time, those models will get more sophisticated and our robots will get stronger and more sophisticated and that we can kind of have a um, symbiotic relationship with computational neuroscience where we try to implement or translate uh, the best or most interesting new models from computational neuroscience into forms that are useful for students in the classroom. Um, I, I don't think there should be, you know, when when a new theory in neuroscience is first developed, maybe then you need an expensive equipment and a supercomputer to run it. But any decent theory of brain function should be, you um, you should be able to compress it a bit uh, and 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 make it useful for something like a simple robot like like these are and so i'm i'm hoping that we'll be able to distribute these robots as widely as possible uh, including to you know people's living rooms and and uh, uh, science museums and, um, and 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 schools uh, even even primary schools and to basically have various levels of complexity uh of, of brain models. And that, that's complexity, both in terms of the, the process that you're trying to model, the, the, the functions that you're trying to implement, but also the, the amount of um, interaction that users can have with those models. So if you want to implement a very uh, complicated co- model of the cortex, for instance, maybe you don't want the students to be messing with the, the, you know, the synaptic weights, but maybe you do want them to be able to uh you know adjust the levels of stress hormones or serotonin and see the, the kind of the real effects what would happen to a real brain if you did that uh, and so the long-term aim is to just make brains and brain functions increasingly accessible to as many people as possible
1: superb so just for the for the listeners if people wanted to get in touch with you or wanting to follow up and and do some more research and learning about your stuff could you give some websites uh twitter handle any other info that would be useful for people who are trying to find out more about your work
0: absolutely so uh, i work with uh, backyard brains so backyardbrains.com is the site for that we don't have we don't have anything about the neuro robot on the site much at the moment because we're, we're only just starting to sell a few developer versions to schools but we're not we're not actually uh, selling the robots yet but as I said you can build them yourself um, my Twitter handle is Chris Harris at Chris Harris uh, there is the, I think if you go to github.com slash backyard brains slash neural robots uh, that's kind of the most official uh, websites that the project has and there's a user guide there there is um, uh, links to you know some pictures youtube videos a few things like that if you want to see see more more of the project but uh you can contact me as well christopher at backyardbrains.com um uh, yeah i on youtube as well facebook everywhere well
1: chris harris thanks very much for the conversation
0: all right thank you very much this was great